Beanbag Studios presents Nine Stories Up, a podcast where we look into our past to try to better understand our present. I'm your host, Hunter Piermont. The launch and ongoing life of Nine Stories Up has obviously occurred during a tumultuous period in the political climate of this country, to say the least. I try to keep things on this podcast nostalgic, always self-deprecating, and sometimes downright corny. When my subject matter veers toward the political realm, I've tried to strike a tone of neutrality because deep analysis of that whole subject is a little bit out of my lane. Still, I am a proud member of the American electorate and want information just as much as the next person. I find that cable and streaming and podcast universe are chock full of entertainment in that space that feels like it pulls us apart either by design or unintended consequence, or at least unconcerned consequence. No matter what outlet I seem to try, I find it difficult to be informed without also being dismayed. In the fall of 2020, I was turned on to the political podcast, You Don't Have to Yell. I added it to my rotation of commute elixir when I noticed that it was actually presenting the information and allowing me to draw my own conclusions. Take a quick listen to a typical YDHTY introduction segment. In a world full of socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to Season 2, Episode 18 of YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted, independent majority who like their politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share it with one friend you think might like it too. This movement grows by word of mouth. Now, for the past two episodes... While many political podcast hosts are former staffers or thinly veiled mouthpieces for the major parties, YDHTY host Dan Sally is a dad of four, an endeavor he funds with a corporate sales gig. The question of who better to present ideas to the conflict-weary middle than a literal middleman by day, who I'm sure is probably more than a part-time peacemaker when he gets home at night, well, that question's a fairly rhetorical one. The questions of when, how, and why or where we always find our story. Um, so, yeah, but so when, so it's funny with John McCain, he was somebody who I actually voted for in 2000 in the Republican primary. It was 100% behind John McCain. And I still believe to this day, American history would have been fundamentally different if he had won the presidency back in 2000, because our response to 9-11 would have been entirely different. There would have been no Iraq war. There would have been no forever war in Afghanistan. It would have been a much different story much different story but unfortunately we got the dude who decided he he honestly i, I mean i didn't want to get too far into it but like you know the republican party had a choice 
do we abandon fiscal conservatism or social conservatism, right? And we got George W. So we abandoned fiscal and that was it. And that set us down the path. That's a lot of, that's, and, and to be honest, like that's probably why I'm doing YDHTY right now is because he fucked it up or he started that whole process. And like, and so when McCain came around again in 2008, you know, I voted for him a second time without reservation, without reservation. Like it wasn't even a question. Was I going to vote for McCain or Obama, even after Sarah Palin? Right. I was still like, I'm voting for McCain. And then, so when he died and, you know, at this point, we were like one or two years into Trump. And, you know, when he died, I was like, you know what? That's one less person like that in existence. And there aren't a lot of people like him. And so people have to step up and speak out in whatever way they can. I wouldn't have seen wonky political dialogue as a likely landing point for Dan. He was always acutely adept at highlighting absurdity around him in the funniest, most succinct manner possible. From the moment I met Sally, he always gave me the impression that he didn't have time for any of it, really. Like he was, he was above it, almost aloof. So I don't know if you know about the first time you met me or you really saw me, but I think it was you who, when my pledge nickname was Noid, yeah, because I'm paranoid, and you were like, I think it was you said, what are you looking at, nerd? It was that? me. It, it was, was you. Me. It had to be you. It, it was totally me. Actually, and, that, was... and that nickname, and fitting, I mean, like, that's when that's what like that's like would like I don't know how many times in your life you felt touched by the hand of God or even if you yeah. believe in those sort of things, but that was one because that was like that was that was just beautiful. You know what it was? We had been watching like Revenge of the Nerds on a loop for like I mean, I don't know how many weeks in a row, and it was a line from Revenge of the Nerds. And so he actually, uh, he was the one who told me to say it. And then, and I can't believe I remember it so clearly like this, but. Uh, no, but, but because yeah. you said it and everybody went nuts. Like, like yes. it was, the reaction was like, that was like the equivalent of something going viral. Like within that dark room that oh, went yeah. viral. And it was, and I was like, I was like, oh shit, this is going to be four years of this. Yeah. And like, and luckily for me, I, I quickly realized that once I was an upperclassman, like, like whenever underclassmen try to call me that, I'm like, yeah, not going to happen. It's yeah. not, you know, that's not gonna, that's not going to work. So it, yes. it did die out a little bit, but like, but if big John saw me today, that's what he would call me. Like one that time is... he called me Hunter and we like both kind of looked at each other. Like it was an accident. You know what I mean? Like it slipped out and he, it was like the whole, it's like a record. Skip. So the next 10 minutes of our conversation were Basically, Sally and I volleying stories back and forth of us giving nicknames to people in the workplace that they hadn't asked for. While I hated the nickname he had given me, I could never deny the brilliance of that moment. And based on it, I would bet having to be called that name, nerd, for the rest of my life, that Sally would have a different calling in his. Do you know what, dude? I'm going to tell you something. When you talked about how you started this, because your dad said things were going to get dark, right? Like, that's like, that's my whole life. Like, that's like, like, I'm like, I'm in the darkness constantly. And like, and, and I have to keep myself so busy to stay out of it. You know, like, I don't know if you remember, but like, back in school, I was always like, 
kind of moody. You know, I never put every, I never put it all together until recently, um, actually. But, you know, I've all, like, it's funny because I, you know, when I got out of, when I got out of school, I was really like kind of aimless and just did a lot of jobs that I didn't want to do. And I always kind of had a big mouth and it was because I was kind of bored, you know, in a way. Like I was, you know, and, um, and then like, it was, I think it was like when I was 20, you know, I was in my latter half of my twenties and I started doing stand up comedy and then everything just clicked. Like I started going to open mics and st- I was performing, like I was performing literally like seven nights a week. Like my wife and I, our first date was my first night off from stand up in six months. It's funny how. If you had said to me, if you had said to me, stake your life on one person from Lake Forest College when you were there becoming a stand-up comedian, it would have been you. It's funny, though, because like I always, you know, I always like I always knew that stand-up was something I wanted to do and that stand-up was something I'd be exceptional at. And it took me years to do it. Like I tried it. I got out of school and worked a bunch of shitty jobs in financial services that I hated and just drank a lot that's pretty much what i did and then um i tried a couple open mics and just sucked at it you know it's just so bad because everybody sucks when they start you know but you had that you had the sort of functional alcoholism thing that seems like a good precursor you need demons and and a and a and a and a maladaptive way of dealing with them that's exactly it, comedy. Oh, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it's it's the perfect it's 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 the perfect recipe. And so, and it wasn't until I moved I moved out to San Francisco. My brother was living out there, and I had just gotten kind of tired of Boston. So I went out there, and I was just it was the same old shit I was always doing. And then I just finally like I remember seeing an ad for San Francisco Stand Up Comedy College, and I went and just took a class instead of doing like, cause I did a couple open mics and bomb prior and then just, just started working at it. And I sucked at it for, you know, everybody sucks when they start, but you get enough like glimmers that you're good at it. And I just kept like working and working. And, you know, I said, I gave myself five years to get on TV and then four years and 11 months, I went down to New York to tape for comedy central four years and 11 months. Right. And so that to me was like, I think the thing is, is I had never like, I'd never been, you know, I wasn't a really good student. I I wasn't an athlete. um, And that was like the first thing that I had worked at and like achieved in a way, you know, that was the first, first thing I was disciplined at, I guess, you know, and um, you know, and then the funny thing is like, so, so right when that hit, right when, you know, cause when you're on TV, that's kind of your moment to start, you know, capitalizing on it. You know, that's your moment to, you know, move to New York or LA and get an agent and either start going after writing gigs or whatever. It's, you know? it's like podcasting. It's like, yeah, exactly, man. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that probably at some point, but, um, but yeah. And so, and then the day before, my TV premiere, my wife and I found out we were expecting our first child. And then, so I was like, all right, so I've got like nine months 
to really capitalize on this because I wasn't going to move out to New York or like I wasn't going to move without a job. And then and then so, you know, kind of started working my connections at that point, took a couple months off because my daughter was born, then went back at it. And then, you know, we had my son. And then at that point, it was like, I couldn't do it at the level I needed to do it at. Like, I just couldn't do, I just couldn't dedicate the intensity I needed to dedicate to it, you know? And then, so I just gave it up. I was like, I can be a shitty comic or I can be a shitty dad. Like, those are my two options. And I didn't want to be either. So I was like, let me be a good dad and just walk. And so I did. You know, and I, and I could say, like, despite the fact I failed at my ultimate goal of doing stand up, the person I became in that process, you know. Yeah, but you're, you're comparing yourself to fucking Kevin Hart and Jerry Seinfeld, right? I mean, I like, like to do what you did is that's success, at least to someone like me who, who gets that, who gets that it is a craft, not a gift, right? It's a crap. Yeah. yeah, I guess. Yeah. So it's like, so, um, and it's funny. Cause like, you know, once I left it too, I had to like find all this other shit to like burn off that energy, you know? And so like I did, what did I do? I had a really kick-ass fish tank for a while. Like I am just obsessed over stuff. I was weightlifting for a while. Um, then I got a kick-ass fish tank then what did I do after the fish tank? I taught myself Brazilian Portuguese. And then after that, then after, you know what happened after that? Then I was like, at that point, you know, my, I kind of been doing the same job for a while. And I was like, well, if you're going to do the same job, then just dedicate, like dedicate like two hours a day to just learning something right? Whatever it is, irrespective of whether it has any purpose or not, you know, two hours a day. Yeah. I'd get up at four in the morning. I'd get up at four in the morning and I would just, you know, I, so what did I, so I tried to like, I tried to improve my Portuguese, studied Mandarin a little bit. Then I started doing some like programming classes online and then I learned, then I found about, then I found out about this uh, algorithmic, algorithmic stock trading, which is basically like you program algorithms to trade. And I was just grinding at this for like a month and I sucked at it. And I was watching these webinars with like, you know, these math PhDs talking about shit I didn't even know. And I was thinking, okay, I got to go back and study math now. And then, um, yeah. And then like, and then I said, then finally I was in like, Again, I'm up in the darkness, you know, studying fucking math. And I said to myself, like, dipshit, like, you've never been good at this. Like, why are you going to try now? The two things you're good at is writing and speaking. So just focus on that. And then that was right around the time that John McCain died. And now a word from this episode's sponsor. Do you know why we can't have nice things in America like, oh, a peaceful transfer of power? It's because polarization is a feature, not a bug, in American democracy. Plurality rule, not majority rule, is baked into our system of elections, and this means candidates are better off 
building a winnable minority of partisans via wedge issues than they are in finding where the political consensus lies. And it's the reason America's two major parties are steadily losing membership, and it's the reason you listen to YDHTY. And this decade will go down as one of the most critical in American history, and I'm asking for you to help out in a couple of ways. Number one, you can get involved in reforming our elections by visiting rankthevote.us, an organization dedicated to bringing ranked choice voting to all 50 states. While there are numerous ways we can improve elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most feasible reform with the most political will behind it. You can also share YDHTY with one or more friends you think might dig it. This podcast is built to help people see above the partisan talking points most issues are framed in. And the more people in the conversation, the less effective the spin machine is. There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to the one who is hacking at the roots. And this is your invite to come with me and get down. I hope you will join me in the fight. And now, back to the episode. The last time I was on email chain with you when that was still a thing was when you said, I'll never forget this, dude. I've never talked to you about this because I didn't talk to Hogan till I didn't talk to Hogan for like until I tried to get him on nine stories up for like since right after the 19 to the game two of the 2004 ALCS. Oh, wow. That's how long I just avoided him because like he deserved it. He deserved to say whatever he wanted to to me. And I was like, I'm just not going to I'm just going to cut this guy out of my life because of this. That's a that's a just reason. You remember the email you sent before the Brett, the Brett Boone, the Aaron Boone. He's like our manager. And I'm like the Brett Boone, the Aaron Boone home run game. You sent this email out where you're like, go ahead and root for the Marlins and the Yankees, New York North against New York South or root (laughs) for the Red Sox and the Cubs. Do you remember that email? I don't, but tell me about it. You sent an email. So this email chain that we were on, right? Yeah. Of everybody. And you had this whole freaking soliloquy essay about why in 2003, everybody needed to root for the Cubs to play the Red Sox because to root for the Yankees and the Marlins was New York North against New York South. And I'm like, this guy is so brilliant and he's so right in what he's saying. But I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and (laughs) fuck that guy. Right. (laughs) That that was, you know, I I mean, I have to I can't. I and mind you to to, to 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 let everyone listening know how far we've come you've been drinking out of a new york yankees beer koozie and i haven't said a word about it oh and you've got the sweatshirt now you're gonna rub it in no and i haven't said what oh what am i rubbing in you've had like eighteen thousand championships since since the last time you and i talked like so just That's stop you well you guys are living the, fat on the calf the whole thing is reversed Stop. It's it the, doesn't, but no, but it's it's Boston, so it's my right to have a perpetual victims complex. Regardless, no, no, and and because uh, yeah. you're of that age, right? Yes, because oh. you're of that age. You, oh, you're the best I suffered. Thing, the best thing yeah. ever that Hogan ever said to me was, I was, I had this point of view in the late '90s where I was like, look, I had to grow up with Don Mattingly promising a championship every year, and mm-hmm. every year nothing happening. And so I deserve this. And he goes, you deserve this. You're long suffering. My father's long suffering. My grandfather's long suffering. I'm like, point taken. You are correct. There is, it is like, <laughs> yes, I will tell you what, 
if you're a Red Sox fan born, Red Sox fans born before, let's say like 80, 85, you know, it, it's almost like, it's almost like talking to like, you know, somebody rushing about World War II, you know, it's like, yo, right. yeah, you think you had a bad, you think you had a bad, right, we were, right, we were yeah. eating our horses, you know, like, <laughs> right. like these, I mean, it is, it is because we just, every, and everybody sucked. The Pats, the Celtics were good, but the Pats sucked. The Red Sox sucked. And so, and it's funny because now I see all these people who are like, you know, in their 20s and 30s who know nothing but like Title oh, Town. Yeah. And I'm yeah, like, no. Yeah. This place and it's gone from, it's it, not Title Town, it's Entitlement Town. It is kind of, it's, you know what? It's kind of funny. Like we've lost a lot of our spite and a lot of our sense that no matter how good things get, something's going to come and take it away. Right. And, and that was your, and that was your edge. That's what made you, you. Absolutely. Right. So now you just look like a bully, not like, like the guys in Goodwill hunting. Those yes. were like, that, that was it. That was the peak pinnacle. That was the top of the mountain for what you're describing. Right. That was Those guys. Boston. That, that, Bos, right. right? Smock yep. chicks, all that shit. Yeah, peak, no, it's that true. was peak Boston. That was peak Boston. And then it's all gone. It's all. But gone. you know what? I've, you know what I've come to, to understand as I like the, the podcast I was telling you about that I'm on yeah. my two friends. One guy is from Boston. He was he's Hogan's age, right? From Boston. Yeah. The other guy is roughly my age. He's from Philly. Right. So yeah. they are they are cheesesteak and chowder is their thing. Yeah. Right? Okay. That's right. And yeah. so I'm like, I have this persona where I'm like, always auditioning to be their producer but i can't get it right it's like a yeah. thing it's like a bit right that, that's always yeah. on there but i balance them like the guy from new york balances the right it's it's you need that guy in the boston yeah. like there's not quite enough philly boston angst you need the new york guy in there you to kind of complete the complete the circle of, of east coast yeah stuff do you know when i think of philly versus boston though you know, Philly definitely has the same degree of like saltiness as Boston, but it's, there's no focus. It's yeah. almost like, you know, it's, it's almost like when I think of like Boston's almost like, you know, a nuclear bomb and Philly's kind of just like raw plutonium, like both are going to, both are going to kill you, but one is targeted and focused for the maximum amount of destruction. Yeah, one's going to smoke you. The other's going to turn you into a slice of pizza. Over that's time, pretty right? that's pretty yeah. much it and it's like do you want the slow bleed or do you just want the fire and fury all at once it's it's 100 percent up to you but, in, you but my it. point is that in doing this like i realized that boston and new york fans we actually need each other like real oh, boston and new york people absolutely. we need each other we absolutely need each other no one gets that right no one yeah. gets that like you have you have to have each other like i don't i don't you know what i mean and, and that's all i can say about it. i don't know, know what better words to say there but I realized how much like how much more enriched my life was when I got to know you guys and I got yeah. to know you guys as people. And it's like. And it's like, it's, I'm not going to talk to you during this and I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, it's a total you know what it's like, there's a total dated reference. But like when I think of Boston and New York, I think of like Foghorn Leghorn and the Chicken Hawk, you know, right. And Boston's kind of the Chicken Hawk where it's going to, you know it's going to prove you wrong. But, you know, that's a funny thing because we both went to school in the Midwest and I have to tell you, like, I 
looking like I always felt like the worst person in the room in the Midwest, like, cause I just couldn't keep my mouth shut and people, they're just, they're not sarcastic. They're not mean. They're, they're not mean to people they like, which is like, yes. Right. Right. And that's kind of how you show affection in the East coast. I apologize for that brief diversion, but when a couple of asses from Boston and New York talk for the first time since the mid nineties, certain elephants have to be addressed for any constructive conversation to take place. If only donkeys and elephants could always behave this way. I, I had always been under the impression that the reason our politics were so messed up was because of, uh, was, was because of just loose campaign finance laws. So what I, and, Great example is like, you know, the debate over climate change, where you have two groups of people on either side of the argument at the time, I think most people have kind of like bought into the concept now, but back then it was still up for debate. And they just were able to throw spreadsheets at each other. And they had, you know, both sides had more quote unquote facts, than they had time to argue the facts. And so what ends up happening is you don't reach any resolution, nothing gets done. And I was under the impression this was due to the fact that you had you know, well-funded industries that were able to effectively buy evidence. You, know, you had the fossil fuel industry able to buy evidence that climate change didn't exist and so enough doubt, so no policy gets done. And of course, buy enough politicians, so uh, no uh, policy again, you know, that might hurt their, their business gets done. And I started doing research into other democracies and trying to figure out like, okay, so what do campaign finance laws look like in other countries? And what I started to realize is if you look at the countries that consistently rank high in terms of voter satisfaction and electoral transparency, campaign finance laws are wildly inconsistent. So great example, like Finland, their campaign finance laws are looser than ours are right? There's like no caps on spending, no caps on donations. Anybody can donate. You want to take a $10,000 check from Vladimir Putin, go nuts. Like no, nobody cares. Right. Um, and that's one, that's one. So, so first off, that was interesting to me because that Finland has a much better functioning government. Um, the second aspect is the other countries that did have restrictions, didn't have an explicit right to free speech like we have. So in order to like implement a campaign finance regimen like you might have in Germany, you'd need to abridge free speech, which I don't think any of us want to do. Um, but the interesting thing I found about all of them is they all had systems of proportional representation. So they all had systems where one party wins 10% of the popular vote, that party has 10% of seat in, or has 10% of seats in government. And so at that point, I was like, okay, so this seems to be the problem. This seems to be the key issue. And so I really started digging into electoral reform. And that's when I started YDHTY. You know, at that point, I was like, okay, so the primary issue is, uh, the, the primary issue is our electoral system. How do I get people to figure that out? You know, how do I get people to figure that out? And so what I started to do was talk about issues everybody was arguing about and really diving into them. And my, my theory was, you know, nobody knows to look for electoral reform as an issue, right? You know, nobody knows to think, oh, maybe it's the electoral system because nobody's a fucking weirdo like me who's going to get up at four in the morning to research like how Germany votes, right? But um, if you can talk about the issues people care about, 
and you could help them understand that there's ways to look at it that fall outside of the Republican and Democratic talking points. And you can get them to question, like, why are we arguing about this in the first place? You get people kind of part way there. And so that's kind of been, you know, what my focus has been. And, um, and again, it's like, you know, I mean, we started talking about the darkness earlier on, you know, and to me, it's like, it's like what, there's nothing bigger I can attach myself to. So other than like saving America. So, you know, why not just fucking do it basically? So the question I have for you, yeah. you have the, so I know that the, the idea of having a multi-party system, right. Mm -hmm. that, that that part of the electoral system is, is sort of center to your mission. It sort of sounds like at least in the, at least when I first started listening. Yeah. But now you've sort of gravitated over to being like a voice for the middle is sort of your new tagline. Right. Yeah. So how did, how did you, how did you go from, one to the other because they obviously go together right because as you start talking about what the middle really cares about mm -hmm. the middle wouldn't be bad off with having more options right so yeah how do, how do you see those two tied so yeah it's i guess you know i i probably say that too because that's kind of me you know that's how i think um I do feel like in any system, there are all, there are even the proportional multi-party systems or, you know, more than two party systems. They all, they, they all have two major parties. You know, the majority of people are busy. They've got too much going on in their lives and they're kind of voting for Coke or Pepsi. And that's, that's cool. You know, that's fine. You have a center left party, you have a center right party. That's fine. Um, and then the people who are a little wonkier, you know, they've got their green parties and their nationalist parties and they've got that. And I, I think that's okay. You know, I think ultimately, like regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, more choices serves you well. Cause like, you know, the reality is, is like the majority of us don't, you know, 2016, even 2020 was a great, I mean, I would say 2016 is probably a better example. I think by 2020 people had made their mind up, but you know, 2016 was a great example where like you you had some Hillary fans, right? And you had some Trump fans, but mostly you had people who really hated one of the other candidates, right? That was right. Am I wrong here? Like the Schattenfreude election. That was exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. Like you either really hated Hillary or you really hated Trump. And that's why you voted the way you did. And, you know, so I, I, I think that if, Again, like I think the majority of us who cast ballots in that election cast ballots against somebody rather than for somebody. Right. But, there, but, the, but the problem is, is that our system's hijacked by the people who vote for. And the people who vote for are fucking bananas, you know? And I'll just use two phrases, um, Jewish space lasers and defund the police. Like neither of those represent the majority of the people who voted for the party that those phrases came out of. Right. But, but the way you win elections in the United States because of our electoral system is you win it by appealing to the most hardened partisans. Cause you have to win the primary. Yeah. So, so the, the primaries are definitely a huge problem 
you know, the other problem is the districts now are so uncompetitive that it's, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like 10% of congressional elections, you know, again, House of Representative elections are actually competitive. Um, out of the remainder, you know, here, an interesting statistic. So 83% of Congress was elected by less than 10% of the population due to the primary system. So, so you, and yeah, right. And how, how do you, how do you, how does that not make you nauseous? How does that not well, make somebody nauseous? Like, how is that, like, I, how is that okay for you to be in Congress being like, I'm like, doesn't it cheapen being in Congress for a congressperson? It, it does. It does. But here's it gets even more interesting because the thing is, is the voters are actually OK with that because the districts are carved to make them OK with that. And it's so sophisticated now. You know, we talk about like when people talk about gerrymandering, they like they talk about like voter rolls and, you know, in these really primitive terms, like the way they the way they gerrymander now, the way they select what, how they're going to redistrict is based on so like such sophisticated data models. Like they look at newspaper subscriptions and, you know, Nielsen ratings, and they build these demographic graphic profiles of the district. So they like, it's not just partisan affiliation because so many people aren't partisan. So many people aren't affiliated with a major party. They've re they, they, it's, are you watching NCIS it, or are you watching Insecure? Oh, exactly. 100%. Cracker Barrel or Whole Foods, you know? What are they? Like, it's 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 crazy. And so, and, and that branding is really seeped in. But so, at any rate, you have a situation now where you have these gerrymandered districts. So, the primary is the general, right? Uh, in a primary, you win by appealing to the most partisan base or the most partisan uh, aspects of the party. And so as a result, you're going to get more extreme candidates. And then it just, it, there's a fee, there's a feedback loop that creates. Cause now if everybody's saying crazy shit, well now of course you're going to kind of like go right along with it and, or, or, you know, you're going to defend your guy. You're going to defend your team. I once heard an interview, I think it was on the rich Eisen podcast with the dude from those old Dos Equis commercials who played the most interesting man alive. And Eisen asked the guy, what makes a person interesting? And this guy who probably never has to work again in his life from playing a character called the most interesting man alive on beer commercials said, I think interesting people are interested people. As someone who learned calculus in the traditional manner, when I tried to balance the equation of how an aloof burnout genius with only a comedy central cup of coffee on his CV manages to land discussions with hardcore scholars. This was the only answer that fit. And until you, you talked about that sort of, that sort of obsessive knowledge hunger you have for yeah. lack of a better term, I wasn't sure. I was like, how in God's name does non-credential like like job to drinker to stand-up comic to obviously salesman because you have kids like a, a stand-up comic who has kids has to become a salesman right yes to, to oh number one to number one sales rep right yeah how does he convince all these like PhDs to come on to you don't have to yell 
and like basically give summaries of what probably their dissertations and their life's work. So I don't share my college transcripts with them first and foremost. That's like the number one tactic because that would instantly, they'd write me off. I swear to God, if any of my professors ever listened to the podcast, they would like drive, they would like drive to my house just to punch me in the face. Cause I, cause I've exhibited way, way better scholarship now than I ever did when. No, I was they there. wouldn't. They would, they would be begging to claim you. If Maybe. I wasn't afraid they'd ask me for money, I'd tell them about you, but I'm so yeah. petrified that I have to tell them, no, I've failed. I can't give you any money. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So, um, yeah, you know, you know what it is, is when, so when I pick a topic, I start researching it and I find people who have written stuff I think is interesting on the topic. And I just tell them, Hey, you know, I'm doing a series on blank. You know, my podcast is focused on this. I'm doing a series on whatever, read your article, found it really interesting. would love to have you on to discuss. And that's pretty much it. And generally it's, you know, I've got a genuine interest in their work. Yeah, I, you know, it's their life's work. They love talking about it. And so, you know, for, for the most part, most people say yes. I get very few no's uh, because generally if you're genuinely interested in what somebody's doing and you have a halfway coherent reason for wanting to talk to them, it, um, you know, they want to talk about it. And the other thing I'll say too, not to pat myself on the back, but I don't have an agenda. Like I'm not looking to, I'm not looking, I'm not saying, Hey, professor who spent your life just immersed in this subject. I want you on to justify my opinion on X. Like I want you on so I can understand what to think about X. You know? So like, that's the other thing is like, and I don't know if this comes off, but you know, when I do these episodes, I'm really kind of trying to form an opinion myself. You know, I'm genuinely curious about it. And I think that that makes it easier because generally if they know you're open to what they're going to say and they know you really just, you want to learn from them, you know, that makes it, that makes it a hell of a lot easier. It's interesting how you, you bring the viewer, the viewer. Mm-hmm. They it's could like be watching. Ama- it's like, I'm an amateur radio person who maybe still they have like subtitles still talking in TV terms, right? Maybe they have no. subtitles. You don't know. They could be viewing. <laughs> Siri, post this to my, to my yeah. screen. Siri, no. I want to see the words when I hear them. <laughs> no, but but it comes across to the to the listener that you're going, that you're taking us on the journey with you. And then you're like, I'll have my bit at the end. Yeah. Where I say how how I might have been changed by this or how ranked choice voting is what we need or whatever it might be. Yeah. But um, but like that, that does come across that that's how you're approaching it. Yeah. And, you, and you've hit the secret sauce of people, you know, and, and that's because you're a great salesman in, in what you do to keep the lights that I see on in your house. All right. Is, you know, one of them works, right? <laughs> is that you, you make people, people like to talk about themselves. Yeah. Right. And so they, they like to talk about what they're, what they're interested in. So you're just, you're just letting them go. And that's, and that's brilliant that you've come up with this where you get, you get like heavy duty guests, like deep thinkers about these topics because you just let them be them. 
Yeah, it's great. It's absolutely great. I like to call this like my gorilla PhD because I've managed to learn so much. And, you know, the other cool thing about it has been, I, I could never have gotten this in school. Like, cause, cause the thing about the, the, the one thing I noticed is like, you were too busy putting toilet paper across pledges hands. So oh, Jesus. Pick up pennies. God, <laughs> I know from, from what I remember. Right. Like, yeah, that's exactly it, man. I couldn't have learned it in school first off because I'd have to be sober. And then number two, um, you know, the, the one thing I notice about at, folks, you know, academics is they generally, they kind of focus on one area. So like you focus on history, you focus on political science, economics, whatever. And there's not a lot of cross-disciplinary uh, expertise. You know, there's not a lot of people who really dig into everything. And one of the things that I've loved about this is I could have gone to school for like poli sci or history or economics. Like I could have gone to school for any of the things that I typically talk about, but I never would have gotten a little taste of everything like I've gotten doing this. And there's a much richer picture once you put all those things together. You know, once you understand how political systems and history and generally it's political systems, history and economics I've seen as like kind of the big, you know, driving factors. And, um, and once you can put all those together, you can get some, you can reach some really interesting conclusions. Conclusion is a strange word to use because I feel like Dan Sally is just getting started. That said, what I have gleaned from catching up on his past 20 years and listening to YDHTY is that most of us in this country probably like some ideas from one side and some ideas from the other. The trick is to keep our focus on the ideas. And remember that our founders wanted to set up a system where all of them could be brought forth without fear of tyranny or retribution. So whichever gravity sucking side of the political universe you find yourself, remember that like Boston and New York, you need each other. And while we're at it, we can all probably use some Philadelphia in the mix as well. We can make room for more ideas. And you don't have to yell. Have you ever been up? Have you ever been down? Have you ever been lost? Have you ever been found? Have you ever been right? Have you ever been wrong? Have you come up short? Can you come along? Nine Stories Up is written by me, Hunter Piermont, in association with Beanbag Studios in Holly Springs, North Carolina. You can check out all the podcasts offered at beanbagstudios.biz. Our executive creative director is Brian Fabulous. Our theme music is Short Stories by the great Harry Chapin, licensing graciously provided by Warner Chapel Music. Our cover art is courtesy of Jack Aguirre, you can find more of Jack's portfolio on Instagram at Colt underscore NYC. If you have a story to tell, you can reach out to us at Nine Stories Up on all the major social media platforms or email us at Nine Stories Up at gmail.com. Finally, I'd obviously like to thank Dan Sally, not only for 
spending a couple hours catching up with me and letting me turn it into a Nine Stories Up episode, which you don't have to yell clips that I use courtesy of Dan Sally. Thank you for that too. But also for producing YDHTY. You can find YDHTY on all the major podcast platforms. Again, it's you don't have to yell. And you can email Dan at heydan at ydhdy.com. You know, stand-up comedians tend to be pretty acute observers of the world around them. But I can't tell sometimes if Dan is being an observer or a stand-up comedian. Wait a second. All right. So here we go. Say that again. Say that again. So I just was saying, I knew you were going to be one of those guys who didn't age at all. I knew this for a fact. No, no, no. If you you listen to me try to pee, you would know that I Dude, why don't they tell you about that?